Most people don't like change. We don't like it when we're thrown into a situation that we're not familiar with. We long for security, for stability. We like safety, sanctuary, because it's there that we have some degree of confidence that all may go well. But life is constantly changing. And the two constants that we do have in life are these. That change is inevitable and that Jesus never changes. The two constants. Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. So what does living by faith look like in an ever-changing, chaotic, disorganised and often hectic world? As we come to the last chapter of Hebrews, we read what might look like a number of disjointed thoughts. Love one another, entertain strangers, remember those in prison, don't pursue sexual immorality or the love of money, and honour your leaders. And this list seems to spell out a series of specific behaviours for Christians as if the writer was saying... Here's how Christians ought to express their faith through their conduct. This is how Christians ought to live by faith. And last week we spoke about holiness and noted that holiness takes effort. Holiness doesn't just happen all by itself. It takes effort. It's something that we need to be working toward. And our passage today describes some of the same things that were mentioned last week. Some of those things that we ought to be doing, some of those things that we should not be doing in an effort to be holy. And so holiness, as we thought last week, just in its simplest form, is belonging to God. So if you belong to God, then these are the ways that you should be living. These are the things that you should be doing to live differently to the world, to show that you belong to God. You don't belong to the world, but belong to God. And maybe our passage today could be reduced to the following headings, just three simple headings. Christian love sexual immorality and money. Firstly, Christian love or brotherly affection. It should be demonstrated in our daily lives as we love one another, as we entertain those who we don't know and we care for those who are in prison or in whatever kind of suffering that they might be in at the time. So verses 1 to 3. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Obviously, this list isn't an exhaustive list. But it calls for us to love all people. Our brothers and sisters who are in Christ, those that we don't know who are yet outside of the church, and those who are suffering. 
And so where there's Christian love, there's hospitality, there's compassion. Our love is to be expressed in the home, in the workplace, at school, wherever we find suffering people, in fact, wherever we find people. And Jesus showed us the way to live. In fact, Jesus showed us the way to love by doing good. He shared meals with the sinners and tax collectors. He spent time with people from all walks of life. The sinners and tax collectors who didn't trust him, who weren't respected in the community. He spent time with those who did put their faith in him, with family and friends of the disciples. He spent time in the homes of some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who were not his friends but wanted to be big noted in society. No one was exempt from his love or compassion. No one. So I wonder, is there anyone for you, is there anyone or is there any type of person that you would not allow into your home? And there may be. But is there anyone or any one type of person that you would not dare to visit? How can we show love and compassion to all people? Secondly, living by faith means avoiding all sexual immorality. Verse 4, marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. He'd already mentioned this back in chapter 12, verses 16. And it would appear that the world of the first century was every bit as sexually promiscuous as the 21st century. It's no different than today. But here in verse 4, he shifts to the avoidance of sexual immorality because sex outside of marriage is destructive. God limits sexual expression to one man and one woman in a marriage relationship because to broaden those boundaries destroys the unity and the intimacy that the marriage relationship that God has designed for our benefit. Marriage should be honoured by all, whether you're married or not. It should be honoured by all. And I don't think there's any denying that those who degrade themselves or others by indulging in sex outside of its proper and God-ordained boundaries, they carry bitter regrets and long-lasting scars. Sexual relations affect us emotionally, physically and spiritually. Affect us in every way. Hence the warning that God will judge the adulterer or sexually immoral. There will be consequences that leave lasting effects. And many are sorry for that. So live differently to the world. 
That's how the world lives. If you're going to be holy, live differently to the world. Live in peace with all people. As our reading called for last week, live in peace with all people. He then moves on to speak about money, verse 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Money of itself is not the problem, but the love of money. And so it's very similar to the sexual drive. Just as a sexual drive is powerful, so is the love of money. Both have the power to dominate all that one thinks about or all that one pursues. Somebody who is in love with money, that just dominates their thinking. Both have the power to take all of our attention and efforts as neither fully satisfy. They never fully satisfy and so we want more. We want more. When they're not kept within certain bounds, when you love something and you want more of it, then you're willing to make sacrifices for it. And if you're willing to make a sacrifice for something, then hasn't that become your God? Can I encourage you to be watching out for these danger signs? What am I willing to sacrifice for this or that? So let us be content with what we have. Let us be content with what we have. The amount of money we have, our spouse, our family. Why? Because God will never forsake us. Whereas money and sex will do just that. They'll leave us, they'll forsake us, and they'll... Never leave us content. The lure of such things or activities has always been a problem that human beings have faced. Always been a problem. And I'm a little surprised that the writer doesn't take us back to King David and Solomon as a point of reference. So think about the writer of Hebrews. He's often taken us back to the Old Testament. He could have done the same here. A millionaire was once asked, how much money is enough money for a wealthy man? And his his reply was, just a little bit more. It's always just a little bit more. It was actually Rockefeller for those who are older. They said, is a million dollars enough for you? No, I want another million. And then it's another million. And then it's another million. The love of money, like sexual immorality, both enslave people and then laugh at them when they fail to provide what they're looking for. It's Satan's ploy. And so the writer is warning of the dangers that both sex and money can bring and how they can become a god. But a second danger here is in applying these verses into our lives such that these become a set of rules for us to follow in an attempt to get a pass mark from God. So it's just like those who are under Judaism, obeying the guidelines should earn God's favour and blessing. So I'll just 
obey the rules. This may sound like a bunch of rules to follow and hence non-Christians don't want to hear this. Some Christians don't want to hear this. And many a non-Christian has sex, money or power as their God and in fact they're worshipping themselves as they pursue those things. They're worshipping themselves. But let us be content with what we have, says the writer. Why? Because God will never forsake us. We can trust God to never leave us nor forsake us and he will always satisfy. Always satisfy. We find complete contentment in God. He never fails us. And so living by faith becomes attractive then to non-Christians. Non-Christians look at us and they say, how can you be so content and satisfied? Why do you always appear joyful and peaceful? What secret have you found that I haven't? Your faithfulness to your spouse reveals a peaceful and happy marriage. How can you be so content and peaceful? The non-Christian world notice. Thus we come to the crux, I believe, of this passage, verse 6. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? This is a quote from Psalm 118 and this is the faith that the psalmist expressed as he wrote this this psalm. This is the faith that he lived by. And this is the faith that the writer of Hebrews is calling for. The whole book has been calling the people to such a declaration. The whole book all the way through to this point is saying, I want you to also say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember the ancients, our forefathers and mothers, as described in chapter 11 whose faith in God was steadfast. Recall how God has worked among us right down through history with the Hebrew people to this present day when we have come to this place where we now recognise that all is fulfilled in Christ, is what the writer is saying. We can say with confidence that God is our helper. We have nothing nor anyone to fear. Can you say these words for yourself? Do these words apply for you? Now, if you can say with confidence that God is your helper and that you have nothing to fear, then sexual immorality or the love of money will not be greater, too great a lure for you. And you will live by faith. And you will demonstrate that faith by your love for your brothers and sisters. You'll be quick to offer hospitality. You'll be serving those who are in prison and those who are in whatever times of suffering. For whatever we face and whatever the Lord may ask us to do, we are confident that we have his help. I trust that's where you are at. The will of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you. 
Are you confident that God is your helper? The writer then turns and points them to their contemporary examples, verses 7 to 8. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. In essence, he says, the faith of our forefathers can also be seen in your leaders, in those who have shared their faith with you and sought to teach you from the word of the Lord. No doubt they too have been through some tough times and they've faced some really difficult situations, but they have kept the faith, so consider their way of life and imitate their faith. The way you live your life can have a positive example on your brothers and sisters as they look at you, as they examine your faith, imitate your faith. You see, Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. And it's not just a statement about that he never changes. In the context of this passage, it's about him being our helper. He's the same yesterday. He helped all of our forefathers. He's the same today. He's the same forever. On the basis of God's faithfulness to those who have gone before, on the basis of God's faithfulness to your brothers and sisters today, on the basis of the faithfulness of God that you have experienced in your life, you can trust him with your future. God doesn't change. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. And I hope that you can apply verse 6 to yourself. I say with confidence that the Lord is my helper. I won't be afraid. What can anyone do to me? I say with confidence. God is my helper. Are you confident that God will help you? Confident that he will help you. The words from one of our songs that we sing, Lord, I come, I confess, I need you. Oh, how I need you. Bowing here I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. Every hour I need you. You're my one defence, my righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. And don't we need the Lord? And God says, I'm here for you. I am here for you. As you look back over these verses, notice that the writer ties our ability to be content and our ability to be faithful to the level of trust that we have in Christ to be there with us and to help us through our circumstances. The creator of the universe, the one true God, says that he will care for you. He will care for us, 1 Peter 5, 7. And he will work all things to get together for good for those who love him. It's a promise. 
What possible reason would we have to fear anyone or anything if God is our helper? What other God offers us their faithfulness, their ongoing presence, their compassion, their love, their comfort, their strength, their guidance? No other God offers us those things. Our Father promises to come and to assist us, to help us through the difficulties that we face in life, our journey. Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever, because he has declared that he will never leave us nor forsake us, then we can say with confidence that he is our helper. There's nothing nor anyone that we should be afraid of. Praise God.